big part of winning at retail is understanding what motivates consumers to buy. It's a topic that has gotten increasingly complex now that retail spans so many different channels. One man has made it his life's work to go deep and get inside the mind of the consumer. Meet Paco Underhill, founder and former CEO of Envirocell, a behavioral research and consulting firm that tests prototype stores as well as monitoring consumer behavior on websites and in brick and mortar stores. In this episode of A Seat at the Table, Paco discusses how fashion has evolved into what he refers to as uniforms and costumes, the new influences on women's choice of career wear, and shifts in how consumers shop and some best practices in how retailers can respond. So let's sit down with Paco and try and make sense of today's fast-changing retail market. Well, first of all, I want to thank you very much for joining me on a seat at the table. It's really a pleasure to have you here. And I'm I'm very excited to get into your point of view on what you see happening at retail and with just the general, I would say, shift in consumer attitudes as you see it. Okay. All right. First of all, um, we are finally moving from the 20th century analog world to a 21st century digital digital world. And as we talked about uh, the day before yesterday, that if you think of it in the 1960s, there was a Singer sewing machine that existed in the garment district here in New York. And over the next, in effect, 50 years or 60 years, that sewing machine has migrated to the lowest labor cost around the world. So starting in New York, going to Mexico, then to Haiti, then to China, then to Vietnam, and finally ending up in Bangladesh. Each point along the way, it got farther and farther away from the end consumer. And it was fueled by both labor costs, but also balancing labor cost and transportation costs. One of the challenges which this gave to the fashion industry is that it had to predict where fashion was going to go at least six months in advance. Okay. And part of what we know, Jane, from the world that both you and I have occupied in is that not only did it sometimes succeed, but it sometimes failed, which is what created, you know, outlet malls and stuff like that to be able to deal with whatever the remnants of last year's versus, you know, what was hot this year and it's out of stock. One of the things that we know is that one of the pioneers of getting past this was Zara and Mango, who did a very, very nice job of being able to report not only what was selling, but what wasn't selling, um, and be able to fulfill some of those supply chains really, really well. And part of what I think they were also pioneers is the concept of what is global and what is local. And I think this is for, particularly for fashion, has been the, the recognition uh, that Paris, London, and New York no longer rule. They may influence, but they no longer rule. Fashion isn't dictated from some central location, and it isn't dictated necessarily by the fashion houses in Milan or in uh, Paris. But part of what we, we know from our world is that there are dresses that will fly off the floor in Dallas that nobody will touch in Philadelphia. 
True. And that that trade-off here between global and local is one of the challenges that the major um, department store and fashion chains have had to deal with, which is how do I understand the local market? And how do I respond to the local market? And it could be everything from sizing to color to the nature of conservatism. But in that exiting of Paris and London, part of what that's also opened up is the world of influencers. And that social media has been something where the fashion trends not only are passed down, but fashion trends are, are, are passed up, okay? And I think that is that is really interesting. And it is it is true whether you're in Dallas or in in uh, Philadelphia or you're in Wuhan or in Shanghai, is that there are fundamental changes there. We also know that the world of what we wear has gone through some shifts, fueled in part, I, I again by the explosion of our digital world, but also some of just the changing climate of uniforms and costumes. Could you unpack that a bit? I know you had mentioned that when we spoke the other day. So perhaps you can just explain what you mean by uniforms and what you mean by costumes and, and how you see that impacting fashion nowadays. Well, I think let's recognize something. One of the fundamental shifts in our broader um, global landscape is the changing status of women, okay? And that as women are now more than 60% of the graduates of institutions of higher learning. And that if you look at New York, London, Paris, Dallas, uh, even Tokyo, and you look at a 27 year old working person, the chances are that that person, if they're female is making more money than the man. Is there a glass ceiling? The answer is yes. But part of what this has meant is that the professions that women are going into have gotten eminently broader, meaning that they're going into law, they're going into insurance, they're going into business. And part of what this means is that there's a, there's a shift in terms of fashion, which is that when you go in to a conservative business, your role is to blend in, not to stand out. So if you are working at a fashion house or a fashion magazine, um, you know, you, you can express your style in a much different way. But if you're going into a law office, yes, there are repertoires in terms of your shoes and your jewelry, which are, are yours, but just the role of the uniform and the uniform governs much of what we wear Monday through Friday. And whether it's the uniform that I go to work or it's the uniform I go to work out in, or it's the uniform that I go meet my friends on a Thursday night versus what I choose to wear on Saturday night. And if I go into your closet, Jane, there are things that were bought for everyday use. And there were things that were bought for a special occasion. You were going to a wedding you're going on vacation, you're going to see an old friend who you hadn't seen in 25 years and wanted to look your best. I mean, but those are the, the shift in terms of, it's also to a certain extent true about boys. And that sense of uniforms, I, 
part of what happens also here is that once we reach age 40, we've sort of decided on what works for us. And I, I won't say I wear the same clothes, but I wear a uniform, I would say 90% of the time, meaning that shirt, t-shirt, pants, it, I look good in it, but you know, am I wearing hip hop fashion? The answer is no. So I think part of what you're looking at here in terms of uniforms and, and costumes is a definition of both what your personal style is and what your personal comfort is. But it's also a tribute to the fact that the broader marketplace for fashion, particularly in North America and in Western Europe and in the wealthier parts of Asia, is, is settling in on a mature audience. Right. So you're looking at uniforms as what we wear in order to blend in or in order to, in a sense, um, look like we're part of whatever environment we're in, whether it be our office setting or whether it be our social group. In that case, how would you define a costume? Costume is something where I am going to an occasion where I have permission to be able to uh, be something else. Um, and that is, and where I'm looking to make a statement that I may not want to make on a Tuesday night. And, you know, this, this is not only about what we wear, but in terms of the world of beauty, it's, you know, how much cosmetics that I'm putting on and, you know, what's my jewelry, what kind of shoes am I wearing? Am I, am I going to wear those, you know, six inch lettos on a, on a Tuesday night? The answer is probably no. I think this is also in a younger generation. Okay. As we deal with urban urbanization, I have noticed that in my own life, my young stepdaughters who live in New York city um, are very cognizant about riding the subway and therefore the things that would be permissible in Texas, okay, if I'm driving my car to wherever I'm going versus riding the subway are things that, you know, they have learned to be careful about and my hat's off to them for. So then when you're looking at some of these shifts that you see happening, um, whether they be um, demographics or psychographics, depends upon how you want to frame it. How do you see that impacting then um, retail in general? Well, I think there are a number of things going on that are happening above the radar screen. And there are things that are happening just under the radar screen. Just under the radar screen, for example, the concept of vintage or the concept of, re of recycling. That um, this is something that we have gone from, oh, I have to shop those stores to I can shop those stores. And the idea that recycled clothing is perfectly acceptable reminds me Jane, of that victory that Walmart and Target won in the late 1980s and 90s, where it was no longer shameful to be caught on the parking lot. Think about it here. I mean, there was a generation of us where, you know, if you were caught in the parking lot of Walmart, you were confessing that you were, you know, you know, what your economic circumstances are. But Target, Walmart, you know, have did a terrific job. Kmart, I might point out too, in terms of their marketing efforts, 
did a, of making it permissible for us to be able to do something. Second theme here is as our factories get more digital and get closer to the customer, I can go to Seoul, for example, and there are things that are constructed in the back room, meaning that the distance between you and where it's going from a roll of fabric to something that I'm going to wear is no longer tens of thousands of miles, but could be a matter of meters. The other theme here, which is, I think, a really fascinating one, is the role of body scanning, meaning that it is possible now for you to have a body scan of yourself and in effect, have a personal shopper that understands you and that understands your shape, your dimensions, and your closet, and therefore can act in a way as a personal shopper in a way that is is going to transform how we choose to consume. I think that'll be interesting, especially around the push towards greater personalization, where people are looking to have something that's a little more special rather than simply buying quantity as we used to. I think it's also being able to go in and go, you know, I would really like to have a pair of jeans, but the idea that those jeans could be customized to fit exactly my waist and my dimensions and the length of my legs and whatever is something that is very positive and fits into that uniform culture too. How do you see that fitting into that uniform culture? Well, some of it is that this personal uh, assistant is going to, one, get things to fit better. It's also going to help you manage your closet. And that concept of managing your closet, while some of us do it really, really well, there are others of us that do it reasonably poorly. And how often have we bought something, taken it home and went, why did I buy this? That's true. (laughs) Or go into your closet and go, I bought that and I've worn it three times in five years. Yeah, it's sad, but that is really the truth for so many people, myself included. And I think one of the trends which I hope we're going to get to is as that moves forward is getting to fewer, better things. I would agree with you. I think that we're definitely seeing a shift. It's a slow one, uh, but certainly a shift from more is more to fewer is better. I preferably not only fewer is better, but what you're buying, you're hopefully, because you're buying fewer, you are able to buy better quality. Now, if you were to have one thing that you would advise people who were running retail operations today, what would your best advice be? First of all, I think one of the things about retail apparel, okay? is recognizing that the average time spent in a dressing room is up by almost 20%. Oh, is it really? And this is as people use Snapchat and FaceTime to be able to. And that part of what I think is very important in the apparel retail world is to understand the complete store, okay? To understand the social dynamics of people walking walking in the door, okay? And to recognize that finding a way to create a community is one of the ways that you cement your relationship with your customer. I love the fact that some Japanese stores 
have programs where if you buy a dress, you are given the option of sending pictures of yourself in that dress, which are then played inside the store. Oh, nice. Okay. And that, that, that role of creating community here is one that I think is very exciting. Yes, I think that's very interesting. Uh, what are some of the things that you see happening in addition to this around shopper experience? Because experience has become such a buzzword these days. Well, I think this is also one of the challenges that we face. And this is, again, one of the topics that as a researcher, uh, we have spent an enormous amount of time over the past 10 years, is what is the difference between the experienced shopper and the inexperienced shopper? Meaning that if I'm if I'm a beauty site or I'm a fashion site, what's the difference between somebody who's there for the first time versus somebody who's there for the 101st time? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, do you have conclusions on that? Well, I think one of the topics here is that there isn't a ubiquitous answer. And even whether it's whether you're selling fashion or you're selling uh, technology, that it's driven sometimes by age, sometimes by location, right. uh, but it's also being driven by familiarity. Right. And that digital literacy and affluence don't always walk hand in hand. Yeah, that's true. So generally speaking, then, from your research in studying people who are visiting websites, are there key takeaways that you've found? Well, I think one of the things I think is really interesting is there's a that so much of digital research is based on clickstream data. Okay. Okay. And that is often what I the the parallel that I point to here is that clickstream data and sales data are often analogous. It is if I think about sales data, it is looking at the functionality of a store from the vantage point of the cash register. And that one of the key aspects to under to understanding digital isn't just understanding what people are doing, it's what they aren't doing that you'd like them to do. Okay. Um, we have a tool that we have used called uh, WebAlarm, and which is patented, which is a software package that when a digital client comes to us, we recruit a cross-section of people right. uh, and load our software package onto their laptops and, and their phones. And it lets us look at and talk to somebody as they shop online. Oh, that's and very interesting. And um, it it has it has been a remarkably effective tool to be able to look at the the language, the images, the whatever. And the web designers have gone from being threatened by it to loving it be, because often we can make a very subtle shift and see the results almost immediately. Wow, that's incredible. It's so fun. You're, so you're actually someone is shopping and you're able to sort of ping them and start having a conversation with them? Yes, exactly. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I mean, part of what this is, is that we will re re recruit people and there may be we'll recruit a novice user and an expert user. And we may do, you know, 50 or 60 of them. And um, if we're working for one beauty company, let's say, okay that we're sending them, we, we will ask them to go to our client uh, site, but we'll also ask them to go to competitor sites. 
and be able to look at some of the differences there. In the technology thing, particularly with you know telecoms here, um, understanding what people see and how they see something is just really, um, it, it's something where if I took one of my clients from Seattle or Silicon Valley and we had a couple of beers together, they would tell you that they get more from 30 webalongs from us than they do looking at the clickstream data from 10,000 people. Wow, that's really interesting. And I think that's something that everyone wants to get their hands on because everyone is really trying to decode what's happening online and being able to analyze the data in a way that they really understand where, you know, where the opportunities are. I think there's a lot of things that can be measured online, but not all of that is giving Jane, people the right conclusions. Jane, I mean, part of what we're looking at is a better meeting of art and science. Okay. And I think there are lots of there are lots of us from people in the AI world to whatever that are trying to get to that goal. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it is really overwhelming because you can get so much data, but that data is not necessarily meaningful towards leading you to the right decision or the right insight. So picking out what's important and setting the right benchmarks is foundational and yet very difficult to achieve. I mean, part of what we're looking at is in the 21st century, collecting data is really easy. Figuring out what the hell you do with it is a lot tougher. Yes, and very one well of the said. Things, uh, one of the things which I um, relished as a refugee from the world of academia is that stepping off into the world of commercial research as opposed to ac ac academic research, people didn't care how big your database was. They cared about whether you could use it in a way that created a difference. Right. And that meant that, you know, the line between quantitative and qualitative was, was yes, it was there, but there were, it was fuzzier. And right. if I could come in and go, here are five things you can do tomorrow, then people are a lot more willing if those five things made a difference to be able to look at the five things that I suggested them doing, you know, in a month or next year. Yeah, I think that's the th I think that's really the key. People are mm -hmm. looking to say how does this lead to something that's actionable? True. True. Very very true. So in terms of shop along, then this is specifically to be able to track what consumers are doing online and in real time get feedback. Well, we call it a web along here. Okay. okay. Yes. A web along, and it's a patented um, uh, process. And um, yeah, it is. It is a. It's a very interesting tool that sort of mimics the the work that we also did in store, which is to do a shop along where we right. would go shopping with somebody, and you know talk to them and ask them questions while they you know move through the store. Yeah, I think that kind of customer research is invaluable. And it's a shame that a lot of brands and retailers don't really want to do that. Um, or I don't know if they don't want to do it, but they don't do it. Because like you said, you really start to fill in the black holes in the information that you're getting, because typically you're only collecting data based on what people did, right? What they bought, what item well, they bought, what size. You don't know why they didn't buy what they didn't buy. I think part of what we're looking at is that the broader world of retail and fashion design 
has become more of a collaborative art form. Right. Okay. And I think that is in part based on the fact that the fashion design world is no longer dominated by men. It's it's uh, it's dominated. It is it is a co-mingling of genders and interests here. And therefore there is less ego and and more delight being put into the process. Yeah, I think it I think it's interesting uh the fact that we have so many that we've really had a resurgence, you might say, of indie brands. Whereas I think we went from having a lot of indie brands maybe a generation ago um, to having everything being more or less aggregated under a few, you know, massive brands, maybe national brands or international brands. And now a lot of it because they could sell online. We have seen a proliferation of, like you're saying, brands that are smaller brands, collaborative brands, brands doing something very different, not following key trends. So yes, I think I think that's an interesting point you bring up. Well, I think also part of what it means is that we have the chance to be able to step away from cotton and wool and get to you know bamboo and old paca. Right. Yeah, I think that um, in a sense, there's probably never been a greater opportunity for individuals to come into this field and be able to carve out at least a small niche for themselves. Well. You know, I think the 20th century, um, Jane, was uh, was about technology letting us get big. Right. And one of the things about the 21st century is that technology is often letting us get smaller or letting us get more local. I think that's a very good point because you're right. In the 20th century, technology was really something only massive companies could tap into because it was very expensive and very complex to use, whereas now it's become simplified and less expensive to the point where, as you're pointing out, everyone can afford to have not the exact same applications, but pretty much the same. True. Where can people learn more about WebAlong? I think that a lot of people listening to this would be very, very interested in learning more about that particular service. Well, you can you can always reach out to me personally here at you know Paco Underhill at in or Paco at inviracell.com. Okay. Or you can go to PacoUnderhill.com or you can go to inviracell.com. All right. Well, I'm going to put all of those links in the show notes. And okay. I, wa- I want to thank you so much, Paco, for taking the time to join me here today and for sharing so many interesting views with myself and our audience here. Well, uh, thank you for inviting me, Jane. It is always a pleasure to talk to you.